You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. This hour, our next conversation in our Women of Faith series. Through the spring and summer, I'm interviewing women from many different faith traditions who are animated by some of the most challenging issues and questions of the day. Janan Mohajir talked to us recently about where her Muslim faith intersects with other faiths and building those interfaith alliances on college campuses. If you take a class in which you're learning about a different religious tradition, a different religious community, not only do you gain knowledge about that community, but you also, your attitude towards that community also shifts. And you are also more likely to then build relationships with someone in that community. Sister Simone Campbell talked about reserving time for contemplation in the midst of demanding work of Catholic social justice. For me, it's about doing a meditation practice where every morning I meditate for about an hour and it's quiet just listening and it's not me telling God what to do which often my prayer was for a long time <laughs> but it's rather listening and and trying to be open to where is God calling me? And I would really recommend our recent conversation with Misa Youssef. Today, Grace Lutheran Church Pastor Emmy Kegler and finding what is real among the flaws and the truths of her Christian faith. Pastor Kegler spent her teen years feeling lonely and isolated. She found comfort in the rituals and community of church. But the teachings of her faith were often deeply judgmental about the identity that she was coming to terms with. Pastor Kegler writes in her new memoir, I needed someone to tell me that all my differences, my impossibilities, my queerness, everything in me that pushed me to the edge of society was not going to prevent my inclusion. As Emmy Kegler joins me in the studio, I'd love to hear from you. I know she would, too. How do you reconcile the teachings of your sacred texts and church leaders with the fact that they can be exclusionary and sometimes mean-spirited? Is this something that you have personally wrestled with? You want to be attached to a faith community, wherever that is, in a temple, in a mosque, in a church, in a more casual gathering. You want to be attached to that faith community, but sometimes the the teaching of the texts and the church hierarchy don't fit with who your identity is, who you think you are. So talk to us about that this morning. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828 on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Emmy Kegler is the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Northeast Minneapolis. Her new memoir is titled One Coin Found, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins, and she's with me in the studio, and welcome. It's really good to have you here. Thanks so much, Carrie. It's great to be here. I thought we could begin on a Sunday in October. I think you're a senior in high school. Mm. You're 17. You've told a few friends that you're gay. You've been attending a church that you call Watermark in the book, and you feel like you're in some ways among kindred spirits for being that young but being religious and seeking out this kind of a community. On this day, a young man who was attending seminary 
stands up and he leads the congregation and he leads the service. And what happens? Uh, That gentleman was particularly compelled that Sunday to preach on the evils that were uh, chasing after America's youth, which were in order, according to him, alcoholism, abortion, and then the pinnacle, homosexuality. And this was the first time that we'd heard, at least in the year and a half that I'd been attending, heard political issues directly addressed from the pulpit, and not in general terms, but in very specific and condemnatory terms. And I was beginning to come out at that point. Um, A few friends knew, but I had not come out in that church context. And as I sat there, having been cradled in Episcopal teachings from youth, which were very progressive and kind and compassionate and interpretive around those clobber texts in the scriptures, to suddenly hear from the pulpit, from somebody who was claiming authority, who had authority over us as someone who was speaking, to hear them say so concretely that my core identity, my sexuality, the the things that I was coming to know about myself at 17, completely separated me from the love of God was devastating. Is it right to say that this is the first experience that you have where you'll start to understand that there are flaws and there is some mean-spiritedness and there is some exclusionary writing and teaching in a church that you want to feel deeply aligned with. I mean, is this really your first experience with that? This is probably the the hinge point for that when it became very real. There were certainly instances as a child where I noticed that church leadership wasn't perfect, Mm -hmm. that my Sunday school teachers didn't know everything, that the pastors and priests that I encountered were not perfect human beings who always made the right choices. And I had been aware on a national level uh, at 17, let's see here, I'm, it's 2002, so I you know, have the capacity to do AOL searches for can you be gay and Christian. So mm-hmm. I've seen the theologies that others are putting out. But in the you know, white, suburban, relatively left-leaning area that I was growing up in, I believed that Christians like that didn't live around me. You know, they were living in places like Texas or Washington, D.C., you know, places far away that would never have an impact on me. And I suddenly, at this very, very clear moment in time, have to deal with the fact that those kinds of Christians live right next door to me. Those kinds of Christians are leading the churches that I feel like I've found a home in. On this day, you leave the service, mm-hmm. you rush out to the restaurant. I mean, you are in crisis mm-hmm. in that moment. What do you decide to do about it in the days that follow? Uh, In that crisis moment, I'm chased down by a youth group leader, and they uh, instruct me that they can tell what sin Satan has put on my heart by when I left worship, which was a really interesting turn of phrase that I hadn't heard before. And they tell me that I have to pray the sinner's prayer and turn away from this lifestyle of sin. And it takes me a few minutes of barrage um, of experience in theology by this youth leader to finally say I'm going home and to leave. And in the next few days, I felt 
perhaps even more lonely than I had before. You know, I'd been wandering from church to church trying to find a denomination and a congregation that fit what I was looking for, which was deep and passionate engagement with the scripture, deep and passionate call to neighborhood, neighborly living in God's world. Which I, oh, I yeah. will just say, which, by the way, it, this isn't like your family. Your family supported that. Mm-hmm. But you were kind of an unusual person in your family that you were seeking this out, right? This is something you were doing kind of motivated by your inner interest, not because your parents were saying, you know, this is how we live with a church, too, and this is how we live day to day. Right. Yeah. My parents were both very deeply faithful, spiritual people. My my father has passed, but my mother remains so. And she also had a period of wandering when she was in her 16, 17 18, 19 age. uh, And that's when she was growing up Catholic and ends up leaving the Catholic Church in 1969, which is right at the Vatican II Mm. turning point. So Mm. there's, there's some family tradition in having a little bit of a faith crisis, I'll say as a teenager. Okay. Okay, so I interrupted you, you go home, you're you're thinking about what this means, Mm -hmm. you're feeling really isolated and lonely. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty remarkable how you how you start to process this. Um, I think I had to process it. I think for many people, the faithful and the the faithful and right and most integrated decision has been to walk away from Christian community when it has been theologically, spiritually, even physically abusive. Mm -hmm. That has been the right choice for many people. It was never the right choice for me. I was always held into that community by something beyond myself and have had to make sense of what that means. So for me, it's uh, the work that I did in the days and years to follow was much less about um, the- theological or philosophical or mental or academic gymnastics and more about something in this has claimed me mm-hmm. and I can't get out of it. So how do I live into it? I mean, it's really the seeds of a much more mature faith, which probably every person who doesn't feel at one with whatever the teachings of their faith community are, has a moment of how will I live? How will I reconcile? I heard an interview this morning with uh, a would-be presidential candidate, and she's Catholic, and she holds views. And she had no problem saying, "Um, I simply cannot agree with that. I don't think it's generous. I don't think it's what was meant. I mean, that's when you start to mature in a faith. Is that fair to say? How do you think of that? There's some phrasing in theological discussion around the first naivete and the second naivete. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, where I see some of that. I'm hesitant to label things mature okay. and mature just because I don't want to judge and impose where I'm currently landing theologically on others. Okay. If I say to others, you know, the fact that this schema of faith works for you but doesn't work for me makes you less mature than me. I don't know that I'm really improving theologically on the people who've condemned me from the other direction. Now, I do have certain levels of saying, you know, your theology has to be mirroring the work of Christ as we testify to in the scriptures and for Christians, obviously. And it has to refrain from abuse. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still spaces in that in which people come to different conclusions than I do 
that I am very cautious about labeling immature just because I'm in a different spot. But I do think there, I mean, it's the same way we come to understand different dimensions of American history or, you know, current global culture, Mm -hmm. that we have very different understandings of them in kindergarten, in third grade, in 12th grade, and now. That's simply human growth. That's understanding better dimensions of the world. That's becoming a better global citizen. That's becoming a a more integrated person of faith to be able to say, I've seen the broken parts of what I participate in, and here is how I choose to knit them back together. Pastor Emmy Kegler is in the studio with us. She's the latest in our series, Spring and Summer, of Women of Faith. And we're talking about her new memoir, One Coin Found, and her experience of seeking a faith community, realizing that some of the teachings of that community were not going to align with her own emerging personal identity. And then the path she took after that uh, through her life, through college and beyond to pastoring this church and what she's learned about that. She's the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in northeastern Minneapolis, also the founder and editor of Queer Grace. And I'm inviting you into the conversation this morning. I'd like to know if you've been through this, how you reconcile the teachings of a sacred text or a church leader with the fact that it can be exclusionary, sometimes mean-spirited. Is this something that you've personally wrestled with? 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. And on Twitter, at Carrie NPR, where a listener says, easy. At 14, after going through confirmation for my grandma's sake, I left. If there's a God, he, she knew my truth anyway and will forgive me. To the phones here to Katrina in Moorhead, Minnesota. Hey, Katrina, hi. Thanks for waiting. Hello. Hi. How do you think about this? Sure. So for me, um, probably one of the most difficult parts of this struggle for me has been reconciling with Uh, religious members of my family. My sister is extremely religious, and when I came out as trans, it was really difficult for her to reconcile my identity with her faith, and I've had trouble reconciling it with my faith as well, but it's kind of driven a wedge between her and I and my family, simply because her faith doesn't recognize the ability to be trans and Christian. And I was wondering if your guest could could speak to that. For yeah. A yes. Emmy. Yeah, I'm happy to. That's absolutely a reality, even in churches that have moved towards affirmation of the first three letters of the acronym, the LGB. People have still struggled with understanding and recognizing and respecting trans and non-binary identities. And I think that points to a way that we've failed to talk about gender as a as a concept within religion, uh, gender roles, what gender and gender identity mean, what it means to be female or be male. One of the most important voices for me in this conversation is Austin Hartke, another author here in the Twin Cities, who's uh, a trans man who wrote the book Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians, in which he walks through different interpretations of quote-unquote, condemning scripture, Mm -hmm. and then also affirming scripture that makes more space for non-cisgender identities. One of the most important things, I think, is to recognize how much is at play beyond just interpretation of a religious text, that we also have cultural influences, societal influences, fears about our own identity, 
and how that all plays in. But it's especially such a brokenhearted transition for someone to have reached the point where they can finally be open about Mm. gender questions that may have plagued them for years, even decades, to finally be able to say, this is the beautiful image of God in which I was made, and to have that rejected by religious communities and family. Cheryl says on Twitter, if you're following God, let God decide who is included. Scripture uh, lays that out. If you don't like his standards, you get to decide to unfollow. It's pretty much his show. I know there are people who say the words uh, of the Bible are a sacred text, and who are we to question them with interpretations? You actually talk about that Mm -hmm. in your memoir, Mm -hmm. bringing cultural understanding, bringing historical understanding to the text. My guess is that makes some people pretty uncomfortable, maybe not in your church, but who are listening today. Absolutely. I think it's it's nerve-wracking to consider, especially if you've never had an issue with the way that Scripture yes. is interpreted and plays out in a particular community or life. It's very nerve-wracking to suddenly think about switching what we've been told is the direct Word of God as a product of humanity. And yet that's simply the historical fact. We know that the Bible was codified and put together over centuries. We know that different versions of different con- you know, scriptures exist. We have both Greek and Hebrew translations of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. How do we decide between those different translations? How do we render it into English? Because that's a process that we engage in through scholastic debate. It's not... A- Unfortunately, God does not ring a doorbell and drop off an Amazon package of the KJV. (laughs) Um, So what do we do with the fact that this is a product of human work? Mm -hmm. Now, some of the ways that people take that is they say, well, there are certain points in which there's pure divine inspiration. And that's been a claim behind, for example, the product of the KJV. Um, You know, God directly intervened in the translation of all these words. That's an interpretation I hear when it benefits those who are claiming it. And I'm very, very wary of interpretations that benefit those on the top and happen to continue to oppress voices that have already been marginalized. One of the words that I used in the introduction was flaws. Mm. Uh, how, how do you feel about that word? I mean, I feel when I, having read the memoir and listening to you about how you come to these texts, I feel... I hear they are flawed in the way that humanity is flawed, that human interpretation is flawed. And we'd have a more compassionate and open understanding of this if we began uh, an understanding of these texts with that. Yeah. Am I taking it too far? What, no, what no, do you no, say? No, no, no. I would say, I usually say the texts are human. Okay. Um, but. But in human, you mean exactly. they're there not is, there's right, flaws, infallible. there's brokenness, they're not perfect. And what that does for me is it's much more exciting and deeply beautiful and spiritual to engage with a text that is instead of an unquestionable, unapproachable almost domineering assertion that happens to have benefited those on the top. Mm-hmm. 
Instead, it gets to be this beautiful confession of faith from a multitude of cultures, of religious experiences, of geographical locations, of, you know, of ethnographies and core languages. It gets to be this beautiful, messy, faithful confession to what people have experienced and named as the divine. That's much easier for me to feel excited and hopeful about than to turn it into often a weapon with which I can beat other people over the head. Call here from Mandy in St. Paul. Hi, Mandy. Hi there. Hi. Glad you could join the discussion. What are you thinking about? Um, I'm just really appreciative of this sort of conversation. Uh, I grew up Lutheran and am currently attending a Methodist church and watching both of these denominations go through changes in how they're choosing to approach and accept LGBT people and pastoral staff has been an interesting um, transition for me to follow. I'm also recently um, working on accepting my own identity, and it's a little bit of a different process for me now in a Methodist church compared to what I grew up in a Lutheran church. How, how's it going w- with acceptance of yourself and then where that fits into this this Methodist, Methodist experience that you're having? Again, knowing about what the debate has been like within the Methodist church. Um, for me, I am incredibly proud and incredibly welcomed at my very own church. Um, everybody there is wonderful, and I find it a very empowering place to be. Um, For my own personal identity, uh, one thing that's always really stuck with me that a pastor told me years and years and years ago is that um, when when kids were asking him, you know, is it okay for our friends to be gay? How do we handle that, you know, growing up in, like, middle school? And our pastor simply told us, as Christians, we are called to be like Christ, which means to just love everyone, and that's all you have to do. That's something that has been very important in shaping my own Christian identity. Pastor, that's beautiful. I wouldn't I wouldn't have any qualms with that. That's fantastic. And I'm I can't even speak to how grateful I am for the work of many United Methodist congregations uh, that have in many ways rejected the decisions that were made at the assembly earlier this year and have continued to be welcoming and affirming spaces for people within the LGBTQ community. So I can't even say, Mandy, how happy I am to hear that that's what you're experiencing right now. You know, what you were saying a minute ago about how interpretation, a given interpretation of a text might benefit the the people on top reminds me of something that Karen Armstrong has talked about. And I, I'm, I'm going back into some old interviews of hers because I'm preparing for an event with her in the fall. She talks a lot about compassion and how compassion can be pretty darn inconvenient. And that's when you're really getting to compassion. And here's something uh, she writes about. Compassion isn't a popular virtue. A lot of people see God as a sacred seal of approval on some of their worst fantasies about other people, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Using it as a stick, mm-hmm. right, to hammer somebody over the head. Mm-hmm. Does that make? Do you think she's right? Oh, absolutely. And I think the way that compassion shows up in uh, the New Testament, in particular, since that's my you know my wheelhouse, is so interesting to me. But I think we see that reflected throughout you know the holy scriptures of of Christian tradition, where God 
puts God's self in vulnerable and compassionate positions. Meaning, meaning what? Um, in particular, I'm thinking of when Jesus encounters people and it says he experiences compassion for them, people who are sick, people who are uh, hurting, people who are pushed to the edges. Compassion in Greek um, is specifically a twisting of the gut. Like it's a divine and human like stab in the stomach. Mm-hmm of how much empathy and care you feel for the other person. So it, compassion shouldn't be easy. It, it makes should you be something that 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 makes you really confront your own value system. Mm-hmm. Do enough church leaders do that? I think I think a good number of us try to. Um, but of course, you know, I say that from someone who's within the privileged position of being in a position of power in a church. I think the difficulty with religious institutions, even if you take any sort of abuse, um, physical, sexual, verbal, psychological out of it, we're trying to maintain a system. And that incapacitates us in some way. My friend Laura Jean Truman reported her therapist said, uh, you can't be pastoral and prophetic in the same sermon. (laughs) Super interesting. Because you're saying you're invested in the power hierarchy. And just that investment means that you are you are not as invested in being compassionate because that may bump up against the hierarchy the structure right when when does if the compassion bumps up against you know the ability to keep butts in the seats and bucks yeah. in the in the butt in the pew bucket um what what do you do with that how do you move into that are you willing to you know dismantle an entire religious system because you recognize how compassion has been shoved out of it and for so many of us if we have financial responsibilities if we have family if we have you know no other skill set except preaching and presiding over the table that's a scary prospect. This is why I think your memoir is subversive in the best kind of way, right? I received that. Thank you. (laughs) You were nodding as Angela was talking about this epidemic of loneliness. This is something that you're called upon to minister to Absolutely. Quite often. Absolutely. When we create Christian community, even within the beautiful ways that we have that community, worship, fellowship, activities, service, you still see people who feel even if they're at the center of the community, feel disconnected. And one of the most important things is to be able, I think, to speak into that, to call it forward, to be able to name that we don't have to hide feelings of disconnection, of abandonment, of isolation, of loneliness. We don't have to pretend we don't feel these feelings. And in my community, um, people aren't quite as reliant on social media. I Mm -hmm. serve people across a lot of intergenerational um, spans. And so even the people who, you know, see other people on a regular basis, who have a very active social life, even in retirement, experience that same disconnect, isolation, loneliness. And I do, I'm really interested to hear um, what kind of physiological symptoms we also see as a as a result of loneliness. So how do you, I mean, what, what do you account for that with, as you've said, you might have a family around you, lots of opportunities for friends, even if it's social media interaction. What's happening? What, what kind of a name do you put on that for the reason that so many of us still feel so lonely? I think there's a multiplicity of factors. We certainly know that as we've had urban and suburban sprawl, people live further away mm-hmm. and in bigger houses, that we've seen instances of isolation rising where people don't feel connected to their family members because you can be in different different parts of the house, don't feel connected to neighbors and friends because you don't have the same relationship with a neighbor. I remember reading something about um, 
it was the once we went past three television channels is when we had the downfall of American society because you could no longer go to work and everyone had watched the same show. Mm -hmm. You no longer went and said, did you catch Leave it to Beaver last night? And everybody said, well, of course we did. That's what we all do as a family. But do you buy into this? I I think about remember what that showed us about Mm -hmm. America, those three channels and those very, (laughs) the very limited programming. And remember who was deciding what we were going to be shown about what America was. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't want to go back to that at all. <laughs> would you? No, I think, though, what it's showing is um, the isolation and loneliness that w- that maybe has been kept out of more privileged, white, suburban, middle to upper middle class communities is now starting to seep in. Mm. We no longer have in those communities sort of common core ideals, experiences that everyone can reflect on, and people are starting to feel more and more separated from each other. I don't think the political milieu that we live in is helping with that either, where we're becoming more and more sort of unable to come back to the table and have discussions around any issue without turning quickly into, you know, cancel culture or complete dogpiles on Twitter, which I'm sure is happening somewhere right now. Uh, A call here from Mary in Minneapolis. Hi, Mary. Hey, thank you for waiting. Hi. Hi. What'd you want to say? Um, so I wanted to, you, you asked about questions that you've, things that you've questioned in your, in your faith background. And yeah. I grew up in a, a conservative, uh, Christian faith background that largely taught that women were, um, not supposed to teach and preach. And that's something that as of recently, I have absolutely come to not believe, um, as a result of studying scripture, mm-hmm. um, which was a really interesting experience, just kind of accepting what I was taught and then going to, the Bible and, and discovering that that's absolutely not held up in scripture. And, um, and he was talking about being lonely, being in a, uh, being in a conservative church where you no longer believe one of those kind of core norms is certainly a very isolating and, um, can create some lonely, lonely times in a, for sure. Uh, a conservative Christian church. Do, so I do you, to, to share. can I ask you, Mary, if you feel like questioning that has opened up other, you know, interrogation for you to say, well, oh, if absolutely. Yeah. yeah. How so? Absolutely. I think um, looking at what I, who it was that taught me those things and all of the other things that they have taught me, uh, not to mention a lot of the actions and things that we've seen uh, kind of become uncovered in the last several years and um, have really um, caused me to not question so much my faith because I think um, you know, going to scripture has really. Oh, shoot, Mary. I think we, I think we, your call dropped out. I think we have the essence of what you were going to say. Pastor Kegler, what, what uh, occurs to you from her experience? I love this, this confession that she has. And when I say confession, I mean witness of going to the scriptures and discovering, you know, we've been taught that they say women can't teach or preach. And yet you find out that there have been female leaders since the beginning and that there have been female teachers, female conveyors, female uh, disciples, that the women were the first ones, you know, brave enough to show up at the tomb and just try to bury the body of their dead beloved friend and become then the bearers of the story of the resurrection. I mean, if we if the men had continued to say, we're not going to listen to the women because it's just an idle tale, we wouldn't have the Christian church. Oh. Julian in Maplewood called to say, as a millennial, I had to leave my church because I felt that they weren't as progressive and welcoming as the Bible calls us to be. When folks that didn't look like us or act like this came to the community, they'd be ostracized. 
I couldn't live with the hypocrisy. I'm now looking for a church that lives by the words that they preach. I want to talk to you for a minute about communion, because these are some of my favorite chapters of the memoir. Um, You write about what it means, what it actually means to serve the bread and the wine, and you describe this day in college when the pastor, what, of the chapel? Mm -hmm. Of the college, okay. Mm -hmm. He hands you a plate of bread, and you kind of shrink back and say, oh, no, I'm not ready for that. I'm not schooled in not how trained to do this. Is not the trained. Phrase. Okay. Yeah. Pick up the story there. Sure. I was handed this this plate of bread and told to help serve communion. And I tried to pass it back. Um, and this is Pastor Bruce Benson, who's now retired, um, but whom many St. Olive College grads know very well. I hope he's listening. I hope so, too. Hi, hi Pastor Benson. Um, he, he looks down at me and He's he's got about a foot on me as far as height goes and says, do you know what to say? And I say, yeah, you say the body of Christ given for you. And he lets go of the plate. The full weight of it falls back in my hands. And he says, there you go. You've been trained. <laughs> and, you know, and I say this in the memoir, it could be argued that he just needed an extra pair of hands and didn't have time to debate with me theologically about what this meant. But I do think for me, that was an embodiment of Lutheran teaching around communion, which is that it's not about the worthiness of the server, of the priest who's consecrating, of the person receiving. It's about Christ's promise to be present for us. And especially I see that in the stories um, all throughout Scripture, in the stories of manna in the wilderness, in the story of Exodus, in the stories of Christ breaking bread with his disciples after the resurrection, especially in, in the city of Emmaus, where he breaks the bread and then is known to them, like they recognize him finally. I experience that so deeply in Lutheran theology that communion is about the promise of the presence of Christ. And therefore, it was... Not There was no concern about my qualifications, my schooling, my training, about whether or not I could serve. It was, do you know enough to confess that this is Christ for the other person? Yes? Done. You know, the other, I think the thing that I, I really appreciated about that, too, is I think of theology as kind of a weighty interpretation, and you must know this and this is the, to be worthy. And he cut through the noise right? In a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have had to. Mm -mm. He could have like stepped into his full authority. Instead, he stepped back from it. Wow. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. How unusual is that? Not at all for him in all the encounters that I had with him. But but yes, to be able to say, to distill down all the processes of Lutheran theology and say, in this moment, what needs to be said in this space is, you've been trained. Go and do likewise uh, was, I mean, that was a turning point for me. That was really the moment the Lutheran Church hooked me, and I've not left ever since. Would you read a bit of the memoir about communion? Absolutely. I looked into the thick molasses bread, the thin wafers, the rich red wine, and heard my name anew. I saw what it did in the eyes of the people I served and loved to be known by name. The gift of God came alive in that moment, the promised presence known for you bore its true meaning and a new meaning all at once. Suddenly it was real. In the breaking of the bread, God was known to us and we were known to God. Christ was present with me, for me, in the palm of my hand. God was no longer far away, checking in to see if I was old enough, trained enough, righteous enough to give and receive the body of Christ. God was here so magnificent and so abundant in joy to be found in something so simple as bread and wine. 
Christ had put on flesh, was born not only into a feed trough in faraway Bethlehem, but incarnate now in the palm of my hand, reaching out for me as I reached out for him, body of Christ, given for you. Emmy Kegler reading from her new memoir, One Coin Found. To the phones to Jason in Champlin. Hi, good morning, Jason. Good morning, Carrie. Hi. Good morning, Emmy. Glad you called. So I just wanted to name drop a couple of books that I found in my formative years in college. I really liked the work of John Shelby Spawn. Oh, yeah. He had written something called Defending the Bible from Fundamentalism, as well as a host of other books. There are other things Bart Ehrman wrote, uh, Misquoting Jesus. I really feel like those should help to open us up to the fact that God should really be more than the old boys club makes him out to be. Jason, um, boy, you and I were having kind of a mind meld. At the beginning of this conversation, I was thinking about the conversations I've had with uh, Bart Ehrman. Mm. And Bishop Spong is perfect for this. What a great recommendation. Thank you. Are there some other other teachings, readings, Emmy, that you would that you'd recommend besides I, your book, of course? Oh no, 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 no! I would never put my book on that level. Um, uh, maybe if I get to like a fifth book and I've improved as a writer to that point, maybe then, but not not at this time. Uh, the one book I wish I could put in every person, um, Christian and and non-Christian, just so non-Christians understand what we really could be doing, would be Rachel Held Evans's last book, Inspired, Mm -hmm. about reading the Bible. Um, I think it's her, I think it's her best work to date. um, And I think it is so beautifully scholastic and yet so deeply compassionate, Um, so hopeful and defiant about the possibilities in the Christian church. It's um, a book that's sustaining me a lot um, in these days after her passing, but was giving me a lot of joy before then as well. You have tears in your eyes. You're going to miss her. Um, Just to update our audience on this, she, um, how would we, she was kind of a rebellious speaking inside the faith, but with all the wonderful hallmarks of rebellion and pushing the envelope on what that faith could do. And she was 37 Mm -hmm. and she died recently. But her work and teaching, luckily for us, lives on through these books. Mm -hmm. You'll miss her? I really will. Yeah, I do. What does she what does she say to you? She wrote the foreword, I should say. She did. Um, What does she say to you that is in in eye opening, enlightening for you to to come back to again and again? I think it's the way um, Rachel as a person um, was an incredible friend and I think just one of the best humans that I will ever know. Rachel as a writer and a speaker and and a theologian, although she often rejected that title, I think had this beautiful way of combining her academic learning with a, a passion for faith and spirituality, a belief that studying the scriptures, understanding historical and literary contexts was not a way of isolating ourselves from the scriptures or backing away from faith, was a way to dive more deeply into it. And that is one of the things that I've been most sustained by is by people who continue to come back and say, I want to ask questions about what this says. I want to learn more and study and 
say things that are hard and find the flaws in it and yet continue to hold on to something that is a faithful confession about God's presence in our midst. You know, in hindsight, that kind of courage looks natural. You know what I mean? Yes, mm, on she her. stepped forward. Mm-hmm. Right. And and with you and others. But in the moment of it, she encountered a lot of judgment. You have too. Mm. Clear clear in the memoir. In the moment of it, let's appreciate what that really is. Mm-hmm. To have a community that you respect come and say, I I can't I can't believe this. I I can't believe in some of the things that you're saying about yeah. a faith that we all revere. Mm-hmm. That is hard work mm-hmm. in the middle of it. It's it's incredibly courageous work and it does mean often that people don't get to make that choice because it's it's work that yeah. means you have to be financially soluble, yeah, right? right? Especially if you're doing it from a pastoral perspective. It means you have to have uh, enough strength of community that if your church were to push you out, you have somewhere else to go. So many people don't have the opportunity to make that happen. And that's why so much of our work is not just about, you know, finding communities that are safe, but also helping cultivate other communities, especially, you know, online or in other ways that people can connect with something that breaks through the isolation, something that tells them just because you're the only person that seems to be asking questions in your congregation doesn't mean the questions are wrong, doesn't mean you're actually the only person asking. Mm -hmm. There are there are other people asking those questions, and we will consecrate them as holy for you and make space for you. But it is hard to step up and be the one who all the gaze mm-hmm. turns upon as the person who's asking the tough questions, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, I, I was curious about, in thinking about the work you do uh, and and how this means often kind of drawing on reserves of energy and compassion, um, how you uh, think about or avoid burnout. This has been in my mind because I did a show recently with the Nagoski sisters Mm. who have, and Emily Nagoski is just incredible. And they've written this new book about female burnout. Mm -hmm. And boy, it runs the gamut of, this is not just the high powered CEO who's going, you know, 50 miles an hour every day. A lot of women, because we dig deep into these reserves of, uh, as named, compassion and energy and enlightenment don't even sense that those reserves are, you know, drawing lower and lower. So how do you think about it? I pay a lot of attention to how that shows up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't, I don't know that I have wisdom for everyone, but I listen to what my body is saying and how it's reflected in my work. So when I start feeling really irritable, really wanting to self-isolate, really tired all the time, I start questioning like, how much have I been working? What have mm-hmm. I been clocking? Have I been, you know, paying attention to how many hours I'm putting in and how much energy is going into those hours? Um, my wife is incredibly um, wise and sensitive to when I'm starting to overstretch myself. And I've also brought on a lot of friends, both within my congreg, uh, you know, p- allies within the congregation and friends outside of it who can say to me, you're you're working too much. You need to delegate, which has never been a skill set for me. I always hated group work in elementary school. I just wanted to do it all myself. I don't want to explain the way I'm thinking. And yet to take the you know, the hour or two to figure out how am I going to delegate these tasks that I think only I can do does save me so much time in the long run and gives me such 
wonderful release and a really a true a sense of grace where I get to see the community is not about what I can do. Worship is not about what I can do. It's about the community working together to follow our call to fellowship and discipleship as a whole, not as a wheel around one individual. Okay, so interesting, because this is this is something that came up in my conversation with Nadia Bowles Weber. Mm. Uh, pastor of the uh, former pastor of the Church of Saints and Sinners mm-hmm. in Colorado and Sister Simone Campbell talked about the tug to make it I you know in the best sense I am the one who can make this happen mm-hmm. and that need to have somebody in your life or a recognition yourself to step back and say I am not the son here it doesn't all it doesn't all turn on me but to also though know that there's a certain responsibility to use your platform wisely i don't know i think that's a really that spectrum is a real sensitive spectrum to kind of know where you're at. Absolutely. On that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that for me has been about how is the, you know, what's the work that I'm producing? Am I still finding joy in the things that are, that that bring me joy? When I start resenting preaching, that's when I know I'm in trouble because I love <laughs> okay, to preach. I yeah. 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 I love preaching. Resenting it's, it like, oh, I don't want to work on this sermon. I don't it. like this. I'm going to put it off. Oh, I better do the dishes. Um that's when I start knowing like, oh, something's happening where I'm feeling overstretched. Uh, I think that's going to be a pattern for a good part of my life, although I'm finding um, as I'm getting, I mean, I'm not that much older. I'm only 34. But as my body is starting to slow down from like the 20s when I could just plug away all night, <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to find Oh, like, I really feel your pain. <laughs> slowing down from your 20s. Come on. My apologies. Um, no, that that sense of, oh, I can't just keep going for 60, 70, 80 hours a week the way I did in college. Like I actually have to say no to projects. I have to ask for help. I'm I'm grateful to the physical limits of my human body now because it does allow me to focus where I need to be. Mm-hmm. Where where are the things that I truly need to be the one who's doing something? And where can I start saying, I can't do this, someone else can do it better than me mm-hmm. and let me find them, let me spend my energy on um less building a platform and and more seeing the web of connections that exist and making sure that others can see it too. You know, it's interesting that you talked about preaching because uh, I grew up in the Lutheran church, still attend when my parents are in town. <laughs> so what's that tell you about me? What's it, it tells me is... that you're a very common kind of Lutheran. <laughs> right. Uh, what's interesting about that is there have been uh, pastors of churches that we've belonged to who are not very good Sunday morning preachers, but are really good at a lot of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how how important it is that you bring it all on that Sunday morning to preach, even if you can do all the many, many other things that a preacher has to do. How much does it matter? To me, it matters a great deal. Why? Because that's where that's where my drive and my pull has always been, has been specifically to service on a Sunday morning. That's the thing that captured me as a small child. That's the thing that sustained me as a teenager was service and, and cultivating that particular really key hour of Sunday morning worship. So I know that for me, my spirituality, my faith is best lived out in trying to cultivate a really 
spiritually deep yet um, welcoming and accessible time on Sunday morning for worship and fellowship. And yet I so respect and rejoice in the gifts of my fellow pastors who maybe don't have uh, the capacities or the desire to spend, you know, maybe as much time or energy as I do and yet can do so much else that can do incredible acts of um, service in the community and connections there, pastoral care, um, political activism, other kinds of things that they can do outside that hour, which may not be as rich. I think the true call is to just step into what's the most um, what's the most fulfilling thing? How do we connect with where others around us are hungry? Good luck on Sunday morning. Thanks, I'll try. The memoir is called One Coin Found. Thank you so much for being here. It's been great. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Back when the chess club said our eggs were soft. Every Monday it's a grace and hold our juice alone. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at CarrieMPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.